Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Dana E. Niles, MS, about the article, Characterization of Pediatric In-Hospital Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation Quality Metrics Across an International Resuscitation Collaborative, published in the May 2018 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Dana is the Research Program Manager at the Center for Simulation, Advanced Education, and Innovation at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and and is the program director for the Pediatric Resuscitation Quality Collaborative. Before we begin, do you have any disclosures to share, Dana? Uh, just that Children's Hospital of Philadelphia receives an unrestricted research grant from Zoll Medical. Okay, thank you. Um, would you start by giving us some background to, this, to your study and why you decided to do it? Sure. Um, being a pediatric hospital, we uh, in the ICU, we do resuscitations often, and in pediatrics under the age of adult, there are no really evidence-based guidelines. And in about 2006, there was the introduction of chest compression measurement devices. So we started to uh, record and measure and report the quality of resuscitations in efforts to um, improve guidelines and have them be more evidence-based. Once, unfortunately, those devices were only able to be used on children over the age of eight, so we still did not have any data on children under the age of eight. So what are the current recommendations from the American Heart Association for CPR metrics in children? Well, for all individuals, chest compression rate should be between 100 and 120, and a compression fraction, meaning the amount of time that you're in, you're actually actively providing compressions during the event, should be at least 60%. But depth, the 2015 guidelines recommend for adolescents, which is um, defined as puberty to adult, should be at least two inches or five centimeters. Under the age of puberty, they they specify to go one-third the anterior-posterior chest depth, so it's really determined by the size of the child. In an attempt to provide a hard number for children, infants um, to the age of one, they recommend about 1.3 inches or four centimeters, and in children um, from one to with the age of puberty, or we define as eight, they recommend about two inches or five centimeters. So remembering, though, that that's based on more expert consensus, some animal studies, radiographic measurements and extrapolation. So it's not really our on hard data, uh, unlike the adult guidelines. Right. So tell us about your study. What did you do? Who did you include? And how did you get the data? Uh, well, there's a, a very devoted group of resuscitation experts in pediatrics. And um, because in our center here, we had done um, this study for a number of years, but uh, chest compression events, resuscitations in children is very rare. So we knew that we had to team up and um, have a collaborative in order to pool our data and, and be able to work on these on these challenges together, such as what would the resuscitation targets be for children. So we included children under the age of 18, and we stratified them in three age groups, so 18 down to the age of really zero. And there are new devices now that where the chest compression sensors or the accelerometers can go down to the age of zero. So if the pads fit on the patient, you can collect the data of the chest compression measurements when you push on that accelerometer on the chest. Um, so we collected this data from these defibrillators and monitors, and then also the characteristics of the resuscitation event, for instance, the patient demographics and, and other characteristics of the event, like the medications that were given and how, the, um, how long the event lasted and the reasons why it was terminated. And then we uh, 
basically took this information once for this paper, once we had over 100 patients, we knew that this was a great opportunity to be able to finally publish this data because we had about one-third of that 112 were under the age of one, and that was the first time we would be able to publish on that age group. An important thing about this study is that we had this chest compression sensor that's built into the defibrillation pads. These defibrillation pads are placed on the anterior chest and the posterior on the back, so when you're compressing, there's a sensor in each pad, and you're actually measuring compression of the chest Unlike other sensors that just are on the chest when you push, you're actually measuring the compression of the chest and the mattress. So this is exciting because we could actually determine the, the chest movement, the chest wall movement, and not have any artifact from the mattress. How many events did you anal- analyze and what did you find? So we had 112 resuscitations events um, from 12 international sites. And like I said, about one-third was from each age group from the age of I think the youngest was a few days old, up to 17.9 years. When we combined all the events together, we found that chest compression fraction was actually pretty good. It was about 71% of events had um, a compression fraction 80% or more. But depth was really, really challenging to to, um, achieve not so much in what would be considered an adult or an adolescent child, but for the youngest children. So they were really, really difficult to achieve depth. So, um, for instance, for under the age of eight, I I believe that about 8% of the events had reached target compression depths, and it was about 2% for kids between one and eight. And that was when we were just looking at the entire event. So there's two different ways we looked at the data, was looking at the entire event, and then we also took all the compressions, pulled them together, and then analyzed 60-second epics. So each epic being its own compression event. And then we found for the depth that about 17% of these epics reached target. So for the little kids, it was really, really difficult to, to, um, to reach the target depth. For the adults, and I think probably for the adolescents in your stu- in your study, the uh, Zoll gives feedback to the person doing the compressions, right? Right. So if you use adult pads, um, which is from the um, size of about 25 kilograms and up, it will give you feedback. So it'll give you feedback for all of the pads. It'll give you feedback on what you're doing. So it'll say you're reaching this depth and this is the rate that you're achieving. But if you're using the adult pads, it'll give you corrective prompts like push deeper, press faster. So it'll give you correction, audio video correction, but it won't do that if you're using the pediatric. So anybody under the age of 25 kilograms, those pads. So was was there better compliance with the recommended metrics in the older age group? So better compliance, people were able to, um, those events show that better compliance with with target depth. We believe that feedback improves your compliance. However, we really can't compare that because in the adult, for instance, you only have feedback. We don't turn it off. Uh And in the kids, you never have feedback, so we can't turn it on. So we really can't compare the effect of the feedback itself. 
Right. Not in this study. Were you able to see if there was a difference in outcome um, with greater or with lesser compliance with the guidelines? You know, we really weren't powered to do that. We didn't feel confident that with 112 events that we could say that there was definitely a correlation or an association with outcomes. We're continuing to collect the data, and we're hoping one of our next papers will be able to look at that. It's super important to look at it, but we just didn't feel confident that we could draw an association at this time. What outcomes are you collecting? So we're looking at 24 hours, obviously ROSC, 24-hour survival, survival to ICU discharge, survival to hospital discharge, and we're looking at PCAC scores for neurologic outcomes. How does this study compare with other studies of in-hospital cardiac arrests or perhaps out-of-hospital cardiac arrests? So they're pretty similar for uh, in hospital. Um, from from this from here from CHOP, we have a 2014 report, and we had about a 91% compliance for chest compression fraction, about 70% for rate, and 26% for depth. But those were just a few kids between the age of one to eight, and there were uh, the majority were between eight and 18. So those are the kids that we have higher compliance with anyway. So that was pretty comparable, if not better. But we have a lot of quality improvement programs for, with using rolling refreshers and coaching and practicing prior to events. So we don't think that our results are generalizable, but um, it was one of the first pediatric reports out there. Um, an emergency department five-patient case series with video-recorded resuscitations in RED here. Those kids are between 8 and 18. I think they had about a 76% compliance for uh, rate, which was comparable, and 39% for depth. And again, those are kids 8 to 18. So your study, this one, is the first to look at infants. It's first to look at infants. And what I didn't mention earlier was since we have the primary target depth guideline is one-third the anterior posterior chest depth, what we did was we, we looked at some of the research that's been published on measurements of pediatric chest, and we actually derived from that data a different target, and we used a different target for those kids. So instead of, for our primary analysis, instead of using four centimeters, which is what guidelines say, they say one-third or four centimeters for infants, we looked at uh, at least 3.4 centimeters based on some of the research that's out there. So it was actually lowered. And then with the children, the AHA is a secondary, they say two, two inches or five centimeters. We said at least 4.4 centimeters for our, um, based on the data of actual chest measurements. And it, again, there's not a lot of data out there. But in order to try to um, have an equivalent measure to one-third anterior posterior depth. That's the primary analysis that we used. And yet that is not very frequently met. Still not so good, yeah. Why do you think there's such a low rate of compliance with the recommendations? You know, we really don't know. Um, you know, any of these studies, we, we can't tell why people are doing or aren't doing what they're doing. You know, we have some some theories. They may, for instance, uh, in an ICU, a lot of the children have arterial lines. They may have been looking at the hemodynamic waveforms. So if these kids had adequate systolic pressures with less than target depth, then they really don't need to push any deeper. So they can pretty much ignore that if they're using the arterial line or if they're using end-tidal CO2. Sometimes you can't see that the, the code can be very chaotic, and they can't see the defibrillator. They can't see the feedback. They can't hear the feedback. They might be distracted. There's been some 
research out there that there's a fear of doing harm in these littler kids. And, and what Tomlinson showed in a, a paper a number of years ago with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest was that a lot of the providers would ignore the feedback if they felt that subjectively that they were providing enough force. So um, particularly in women, they wouldn't push as hard as the feedback told them to. They were afraid of doing harm. And that's, especially with kids, that's a real fear. And we really wonder whether we can actually achieve these depths in these children, these small kids. Our guidelines too deep, we just don't know. But you know, questioning the providers as to why is really a question that I'm very interested in, and we're looking to explore some more. What are the limitations of your study? Uh, well, the first one being we were not powered, and um, we didn't have the intention of determining association with long or short-term uh, survival. The collaborative is really a group of volunteers. Uh, they're very dedicated, so it's not a where we have to have every single one of your cardiac arrests because they're a volunteer. They are able to get in only the cardiac arrests that they may have time to enter, so it's more of a convenience sample. It's not necessarily consecutive events. And with that said, it may not be generalizable and indicative of CPR quality outside the collaboration. And also because we need the data from the pads, in these short events, you may not get the pads on the patients. So we may be biased towards the longer events, and those longer events have worse outcomes. So we may not really be representative of all cardiac arrest events. We didn't look at performance over time. We didn't look at provider fatigue, how that affected the quality of the event. And again, as we've discussed, is some of these cutoffs are pretty arbitrary from the AHA, and we don't really know if those are actual true guidelines that we should be following. Sounds like it was a tremendous amount of work to um, collect all this data. Yeah, it's a dedicated group of people. Uh, <laughs> a lot of data, and you know, but everybody realizes that together we have to have the data. You can't change what you can't measure, and we really want to do a better job for these children. And everybody's very, very passionate. It's an amazing group of people. So, what do you think are the next steps? How do we go about improving performance? Well, on our side, we're going to continue to collect data. This is a quality improvement collaborative, and that's an important thing about what this collaborative is. It's, it's really a quality improvement collaborative. What we're doing is we're looking at each other, how each other um, have what quality improvement initiatives we're using, and then we're trying to learn from each other to improve quality, improve outcomes. So we're going to continue to do that. I really feel as though, and I, I am biased, I do feel as though this practice till perfect, these just-in-time, just-in-place training um, before events and having providers be highly trained in the, the psychomotor skills of CPR and team performance really does make a difference, and we're hoping to show that when we are able to collect some more data. Sounds like you have your work cut out for you, and then taking what you learn and implementing it beyond this group of very dedicated groups uh, individuals is going to be an even bigger challenge. Well, I think I think that just in time, you know, we do it in aerospace, we do it in aviation, we do it yep. in the military when lives are at stake. You know, yep. we have all these lives at stake, but here we are, we have lives at stake, and we really want to make sure that we're doing the best job possible. Compressions is the single most important thing that you can do during a resuscitation, and I think we do need to remind people that literally at your hands that you can make a difference. Yeah, and I think the neurologic outcomes are going to be uh, really important to look at, too, yeah. because it's not just lives, it's also brains at stake. Right, and the post I think the post-arrest care is um, super important also, definitely, right. what you're doing after the event. Right, right. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? Uh, I think this is exciting work that we're doing. If the field of resuscitation science is 
still in its infancy, which is very exciting. And I feel incredibly honored to be working with these pioneers and they also happen to be the kindest and most devoted people I know. So this has been a pleasure. It's really exciting work that we're doing, and I'm, I'm very appreciative of you reaching out and allowing me to tell, <laughs> speak about the work that we do. So thank you very much. You are doing great work, and it's really important to all of us in uh, pediatric critical care. So keep it up, and thank you for talking with us. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. We have been talking today with Dana Niles from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia about the article, Characterization of Pediatric In-Hospital Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation Quality Metrics Across an International Resuscitation Collaborative, published in the May 2018 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of iCritical Care Podcasts. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org slash membership for more information. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM. Dr. Margaret Parker is Professor of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the Director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook Children's Hospital. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.